Citizens of the world, do not fear the sound of the rooster or the sound of trumpets. There is nothing to fear. News of the world is here. And in order to bring you all the information you need to know for the week, we have two humans representing the news. Uh, they include myself, Marco Zacarandero, here in Portugal where everything is echoey. And in Berlin, we have one Tim Pritlove. Yeah, this is human B ready to record. Human, human B, human B. We are the source of all things you need to know, elections, wars, uh, elections. minerals, <laughs> elections, elections, more elections. We've got all the latest numbers. There's some typing machines in the back that are that are carefully... I'm trying to make typing sounds on the table. So. Yeah, we love typing sounds because only when there are typing sounds in the background, it's real news. Yep, it's true. And it's been an election bonanza. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think, let's see, where, which one are we going to start with? I, Australia, because it starts with an A. Let's go alphabetical. <laughs> <laughs> um, type, type, type a bit. Okay, Tim is uh, getting the latest numbers from Australia as yeah. some polling stations are late with their reports. Uh, according to the latest numbers, uh, Australia has elected their first George Bush. Well, he may not be the first, <laughs> but... Uh, This is definitely the most recent. Yes, Tony Abbott. Uh, Tony Abbott is the, I guess, soon to be new Prime Minister of Australia. Goodbye, Kevin Rudd. The Labour Party, which has been in charge for the last... Uh, Well, it's two mandates, I think. Are we on? Yeah, there was the Julia Gillard, there was the Kevin Rudd before, and then Kevin Rudd came back. And, well, they lost uh, bad enough, and they lost to a coalition of the Liberal Party, the Liberal National Party, the National Party, the count country Liberal Party. Not very original, this coalition, with their names. It's yeah. all very national liberal, <laughs> national national, the national liberal liberal. Uh, giant coalition, they picked up enough seats to now be, uh, well, what looks like the, the dominant force uh, for a little while in Australian politics. One of the parties is more famous, but actually, let's put it this way. The big rhetoric, as we have reported occasionally here on News of the World, from the Australian election, from the center-right right, has been about a few things, including anti-immigration, specifically anti-the-boat people, Uh, to, to shut it down, to keep the boats from landing in Australia. Very anti-immigration uh, platform. And there's more things regarding um, support for, for international efforts when it comes to conflicts. Um, money, of course, is a big deal. The privatization of things and so forth. These have been big issues in this election. Um, and, and there we go. I mean, it's the end of the, the labor era. This It's been a while. It used to be John Howard long ago was, I guess, the last uh, conservative in charge. And uh, there were a couple of firsts or almost firsts in this election. Um, one first that I thought was interesting, there's a candidate by the name of Nova Paris, and she becomes the first Aboriginal woman elected to parliament in the Northern Territory. Oh, really? Yeah. It's odd, right? The first Aboriginal now. In the like, parliament. Yeah. yeah, that's really weird. I wouldn't have thought of that. Yeah, that tells you how far things have not come or ah, how long it takes. Yeah, yeah. it looks um, they're going to, uh, you know, going to be rolled back a bit now with Mr. Abbott in place. It looks like Yeah, it. He, he's talking about getting rid of things like the carbon tax. Again, this is why we joke, but we compare it to George Bush a bit because the policies are of this sort of, oh, come on, stop taxing, stop trying to protect the environment, take it easy. 
you know, business, yeah. time for business. I think one of his big statements is Australia is open again, which I wasn't aware that it was closed, but all right. <laughs> They've been on vacation for like six, oh eight years. Oh, my God. Yeah, <clears throat> we, yeah have, we have uh, election phase here now in Germany, too, so I'm totally fed up with these is, kind of... Is Germany things. open for business yet? <laughs> <laughs> Not yet, but hopefully soon. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> Um, but so well, there's another issue that people, some people, especially in our audience, I think would be curious to know, and that is how WikiLeaks uh, founder Julian Assange did. And uh, the answer, the basic answer is not very good. Uh, I think the total percentage was, what, 0.062% of the popular vote. I mean, it's, it's bad. There's a lot of other parties that came in ahead of them. They were running in Victoria. And I'm not really sure what happened with this campaign um, you know, I met a few Australians at Hacker Camp, and they said, oh, yeah, he could do it. Yeah, yeah, you know, people are excited. But even in the lead-up to this election, just based on the Australian press, I didn't see that much excitement. There were a lot of other issues that people were concerned about, and the fact that Julian Assange was running, maybe in Victoria it was big discussion, but not on the national scale. I really didn't, yeah. Yeah, that's definitely not the way for him to get out of the embassy. <laughs> Uh, no. I mean, it was a nice idea, getting elected president and then return home. But, well, yeah. I mean, he wasn't... Was he really on the ballot himself? I don't really think so. I... Th uh I don't know. Now that we mention it, um, I, I like—I always like Wikipedia for its breakdown with the numbers and the parties. And I've got all that in front of me, but specifically his name, his number—I don't see. Yeah, as far as I recall, it just—you know—there's just this name, and, and, and he's behind the project. But uh, other people were sort of on the list and uh, didn't make it. I don't know. But yeah. you know, it's in the end, it's just one topic, and it might might be uh, interesting or even important for some people, but most people just don't care. Yeah. There, there was a party presented, so he wasn't running as an independent. He was the WikiLeaks party, and it was created specifically for this election, for his bid to, to run. I don't see any other list here. Maybe there were some local people. Um, so it seems like more or less a one-person party. I'm sure there are many people behind it. Oh, here we go. I see the National Council of the WikiLeaks party. Um, and there's, okay, there's a few other candidates uh, for 2013. Uh, there's two others in Victoria, um, and there's uh, two for New South Wales, two for Western Australia, and, well, as we can tell from the numbers, none of them uh, achieved uh, anything significant. And, uh, yeah, hmm. here we have the party platform. I'll include this in the notes if people want to learn about the WikiLeaks party, because I'm guessing they're not going to go away But like a lot of new parties, probably their success will come, if there's any success to be had, on the, the very small scale. Maybe not even parliament, but maybe more you know, uh, local city councils and that sort of thing. Mm. Yes. Yeah. So that's the Australian story. Now, more elections. Let me see if I can keep this... Uh, Well, let's, let's keep it with national elections because yes. we have some more local stuff. Norwegian election results. They came in, I think, last night. Uh, some of the votes weren't even counted as I collected information here. But it's already known uh, the center-right has won. For those keeping score, uh, the Workers' Party or the Labor Party has been in charge for, the, for two mandates now. They're going for a third. 
and that did not happen. So the new leader is, uh, they call her the Iron Erna, or that's not the, it's just Iron Erna. <laughs> Iron Erna Soldberg, uh, apparently very tough if you get the name Iron in your name. And uh, she's set to form a new government, but the word is that she needs uh, coalition partners. One of them is the Progress Party, which in the past, and still today, is known for being, among other things, anti-immigrant. Of course, they say that ever since the uh, Brevik shooting, the mass shooting, they've toned down the whole anti-immigrant uh, far-right rhetoric. That's what's said in the press anyway. Um, I haven't ever heard any speeches by the party, but Norwegians will, will probably know the, the struggle, the pain there against or for this party. So they're going to be part of a coalition, and then they still need a third coalition partner, and it's not yet known who it will be, but it's already quite significant that it's going to be a coalition in charge with the Progress Party, despite all their far-right sort of policies. I was just having a long conversation as I prepared these notes with a close Norwegian friend, and um, he says... You know, this is going to be the big selling of everything in Norway. He's very concerned because privatization is a big thing for Iron Erna. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's worried uh, because that's one of the big things. They say that the conservatives want to touch what's called the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Norway, which I believe is all a lot of the money generated from, from oil that they've sort of put aside. Uh, I'm not sure, if, you know, is it savings? Is it what, what is it? But... The word is they want to touch it. They want to use it for things. Uh, I'm not exactly sure for what, but a lot of people are quite concerned about this, uh, you know, starting to spend a lot of money that I guess the country has been saving for other, other purposes. Um, then comes the immigration issue, of course, uh, which has been quiet since the shooting, but will surely uh, and is surely still a big deal for a lot of Norwegians. And um, yeah, this is, again, a sort of neoliberal uh, win, mm -hmm. which is weird because neoliberal was a very late 90s, early 2000s thing. But <laughs> Yeah, and it's strange because Norway, I mean, Norway is a country without problems. I mean, they might have things they call problems, yes. but you wouldn't probably find anybody on this planet who would also accept that these are real problems. They have yeah, I, money, you know... <clears throat> They are, pro aren't they the, the only debt-free country on earth? Ooh, that's, that's something worth searching. I don't know. Yes, uh, well, they are debt-free. I'm just not so, yeah. so sure they are the only ones. But, uh, you know, hmm. they've got so much oil and um, there's only 5 million people living there. You know? What I wonder about is, and, and it's what you don't often hear about, same thing with Sweden. A lot of times you don't hear about what it's like to be... Poor. I'm going to use the term poor in, in Norway, in Sweden. I'll, I'll throw Sweden in. Um, because, of course, like poverty in Scandinavia is not poverty in Kenya. But still, it could be a struggle. So I'm very curious about what people or how people live in that situation in Norway, where, yes, so many people live a great quality of life. Probably even the poor have a decent quality, but you still struggle. You could struggle with, with life, with jobs, with what's required of you. Um, so I'm curious what it's like to be, to be poor in, in Nor Norway and, and what, they, what they vote, you know, how they feel about these different parties. Yeah, Maybe we'll get some comments from that. The luckiest countries are always those where the difference between rich and poor is uh, not so big. 
True. You know, the closer these groups are together, uh, the better for everybody. And that's, that's of course, a problem with the rich who always have some interest in getting even richer and don't really care about the rest. Uh -huh. Yeah. So let's see what happens, what kind of coalition you get out of Norway, and then what policies will, will follow. Um, I don't have much more to say. A Labour Party still stays actually the biggest party in terms of votes, but they won't be obviously in charge of the government. So It will be interesting to see how stable such a weird coalition is going to be and how you know, well-received this is uh, going to be in, in, in Norway. I don't, I don't know. I don't yeah. know enough about Norway. I mean, in a way, uh, Mr. Stoltenberg, in Stoltenberg, the former, now former prime minister, he had his share of popularity after the uh, Breivik attacks Just because of the style, he um, you know responded to uh, all of this. But yeah, looks as if this is forgotten or doesn't play a role or doesn't play a big enough role. Uh, well, authorities got a lot of um, criticism after that. After a report came out saying that the police were also at fault with the way they responded and the way they allocated who went where. Uh, so the authorities took a hit in all this as well afterwards, later. Yes. And so I wonder, you know, what role that plays as well, where everybody starts looking at the authorities going, hmm, you could have handled that different or better. Yeah, yeah. you can always yeah. handle it better. Well, yeah. So more elections. More elections. This is one of the crazier elections. It was the fight for, to become the mayor of Moscow. And actually, not only Moscow, there were other elections going on in Russia on, on city levels. But the big story, which I, I love following via my good friend Olaf Kunz, uh, who is a Moscow correspondent for a lot of Dutch publications and always tweeting in English and, and Dutch and Russian. And uh, basically, the word is, could be the dawn of a new era in Russian politics, though there wasn't a win Uh, basically, in Moscow, the Kremlin-backed candidate, the United Russia Party candidate, Sergei Sobyanin, Sobyanin, got to work on that, uh, he was elected mayor, okay? That was expected and that happened. But what wasn't expected was that the opposition leader, who's really become a star uh, the last few months, Alexei Navalny, he did quite well and, uh, I mean, was even demanding you know, a recount saying that there was corruption. A lot of observing groups said, you know, the elections aren't totally clear and transparent. Uh, but he got uh, basically almost a million votes. Well, he got 633,000. Let me not call that a million votes. Um, and that's a city with 7.25 million voters. Uh, meanwhile, the mayor, he got 1.2 million. So that's just, he's not that far from the ruling party candidate. And they're saying that, he has a, a following and the kind of support that come next election, he will grow, uh, it will be bigger. And what the, this new era that they're talking about is an era where opposition party candidates do better than they've ever done before and, and could get much closer to winning against these state-backed candidates, as we all know, who have a huge advantage and, and very few people are brave enough to go against them. Even Navalny in the last few weeks He got in trouble. He was sentenced to five years in prison. I don't know the background on this story, but it was he was accused and convicted of embezzling money from timber uh, in a small provincial town, I guess, where he comes from. And again, seems odd, but an opposition candidate was arrested for something. Yeah, and was released after being prosecuted. I mean, he was officially prosecuted for... 
Uh, what yeah. is his term? Like five years of uh, prison. But yeah. then he was released. Uh, I, I don't know, on bail, maybe. And yes. uh, so he could stand up for this election. And uh, the saying is that uh, Zobianin, you know, the former the mayor, mayor and mayor, uh, now re-elected <laughs> mayor of uh, Moscow was sort of pushing Putin to towards this uh, way of dealing because he he wanted to have a real win, you know. He needs the backing because in while there's still a lot of support, you know, I'm not saying where it's coming from, but of course Putin has a lot uh, enough support to uh, keep in himself in power. He's not as popular in Moscow. Uh, it's a city. Cities tend to be more liberal. The same is true for uh, Moscow. And Navalny has also been one of, very, of the more interesting candidates. He's not just yet another candidate. He has been uh, the most visible speaker on the recent demonstrations against uh, Putin last year. Uh, and he's known to be also a blogger. But mm -hmm. he's not the typical kind of blogger uh, or the typical kind of let's say, political activist, you know, who's clearly left-wing, usually, you know, a liberal and, and so on. That's what we usually see or expect to happen. Sure. He is actually, I don't know why he's doing it, if it's, if it's still, if, he's, if this is just the way he sees things or if it's just his mode, how he operates, but he's uh, uh, playing a much more uh, nationalistic drum here and, and sort of, Uh, appeals to Russians in a very different way. And he has become very popular. It w wouldn't have been so easy to just put him in prison. He's just not nobody now. And even more so after uh, this, uh, well, you could call it a win, uh, getting, what's the official number? Like 30% of the uh, votes that were actually cast. We were just uh, comparing the number to uh, the, the number of registered voters who, of course, didn't all vote. Yeah. So, um, but on the other hand, uh, Zobianin is not that unpopular. He is not seen, I mean, everybody knows he's got the support from Putin, mm -hmm. but he's not uh, a, a totally unpopular mayor because he's actually achieved things in, in, in Moscow by improving the traffic situation and uh, other things. So, in that regard, it's interesting to see. And I'm not so sure if it's on time to, you know, about time to say, like, this is the political <laughs> revolution. Because the question is, what is the regime doing when Navalny is getting more power? And we've seen how Putin is treating people who were coming too close to uh, gaining uh, power. Uh, what's the name of this um, famous person in prison? Uh, oh yeah, the oil, uh, yes. the oil guy. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, that's a good pub quiz question. That's it's out of my head right now. Anyway, <laughs> we all know pub who it is. Quiz. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. News of the world pub quiz coming soon to a bar near you. <laughs> um, uh, but so yeah, yeah. It's it may not necessarily be the the dawning of a new era. I mean, Navalny's big thing was definitely corruption. That's what he's famous for. Not not <laughs> committing corruption, but uh, trying reporting to, it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Expose it. And uh, you had other. Uh, there was um, an article that mentioned uh, Yekaterinburg, one of the big uh, cities of of Russia, and where an anti drugs candidate did extremely well against the United Russian uh, candidate. So he, again, he didn't win. 
but the show, the showing in the numbers was so good that it makes the ruling party nervous and could mean next time around even bigger. And, and there, the issue is just being anti-drugs. So it's, it's amazing what makes you famous in a world where one party dominates. Yeah, and I say, choose your uh, one slogan, par uh, one slogan uh, wisely, you know, you can be yeah. successful. This mm. goes to you, Mr. Assange. <laughs> okay, yes. <laughs> little advice, little consulting. We're going to have a new section in News of the World, political <laughs> consulting. <laughs> Why um, haven't you asked us before? Yeah, nobody calls us. Yeah, we need to have right. a dictator hotline. Oh. <laughs> the dictator hotline coming soon yeah um let's stay with a piece of news that involves russia and and actually a reoccurring subject of course these last few weeks in all news and that is the syria crisis i just got the update while we were recording uh that the let me see the syria has accepted the offer from russia and let's just go over what the offer is okay the secretary of state of the u.s john Kerry. Uh, said in a speech, it was one little moment in a speech, but it's become very famous now. He said that if Syria wanted to avoid a strike by the U.S., which of course we all know is being threatened, um, then they should ex they should hand over their chemical weapons and their chemical program to the international community. And then in the same speech, he said, "But that's not going to happen, and that's not possible," or something to that effect. Well, <laughs> wouldn't you know it? Russia stood up and said, wait a minute, we have an offer. We will manage the chemical weapons program or chemical, yes, program for Syria for the international community. And Syria stood up and said, we would accept such an offer. So this little statement becomes now a sort of alternative to what might have happened, which would have been a, a I don't think just U.S. strike, would have been some international forces um, attacking Syria in some form. Uh, it's, it's really weird. I also see this as a convenient exit for not just Obama, the U.K., at least Cameron, because the <sighs> parliament didn't want it. Everybody. Because, yeah, because they are suddenly feeling very unpopular in their what is – in terms of international law, somewhat legit uh, concern. You know, if there was a chemical weapons attack, then you're supposed to take action. You're supposed to do something. Um, so this is this could be an escape. But either way, it is one among the weirdest solutions I've ever seen. Yes, that's what we need Russia to take over the weapons, pro the chemical weapons program. <laughs> Maybe while they're at it, they could improve them. <laughs> According to reports, Obama has said that this wasn't really new and mentioned first by Kerry. But instead, it was actually something that was talked about when he was at the G20 summit in uh, St. Petersburg, you know, hmm. when he was talking to Putin. There was this, you know, small meeting they had, very short, and didn't really look that successful. So this was sort of on the table. That's what they say now. Well, it looks good to say that now, you know. Um, we, we don't know. We will probably never, never know what the origin was. But it's really, really interesting, especially the speed of response by Syria. Because he just didn't say, like, Yeah, they would have to hand over the weapons. No, they would have to hand over the weapons in a week. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh. I don't know. I mean, just it didn't look as if 
the uh, Senate and the uh, Congress of the U.S. would actually say yes to Obama's proposal. What do you think? Obama's proposal to, to attack, attack Syria. They seem to be getting leadership support, leadership party leadership support, but I don't think they got they would get, you know, uh, in the Senate maybe yes and I bet in the in the Congress House of Representatives probably no because I think the popular vote is against him and the the candidates that are really into following what their people want are more mostly in the Congress and the Senate does more sort of you know. Yeah, but can you explain to me what's going what's wrong in the US now? People are against war? <laughs> yes, they are. What, oh, yes. Where is that coming from? Well, it's the it's a little bit the legacy of uh, not a little bit. It's the legacy of Iraq, uh, which is big. People did feel betrayed, even though they marched happily in the beginning to it. It's the legacy of Afghanistan, which which to, in their minds never ends. Yes, and it's the uh, the, the idea, the feeling of uh, there's no money and everything is being cut. So it's this combination of factors saying uh, we shouldn't get involved. So there's a, it's a very isolationist, isolationalist time, isolationist time in the U.S., which happens every, it seems like in cycles, every 50 years or so. Um, they, they say, you know what, world, we don't want to get involved. Now, that's what regular people say. Of course, the U.S. is always involved in everything. But uh, that's more the government level and different government agencies. But, I mean... <laughs> Would you say this is a, there's some kind of change going on, or is this more a temporary thing? Is it just a, ah, no, we're I bored. Think it's old. Call, call, us, call us next year, and we're happily going to bomb any number of countries whose names we have never Possibly. heard about? I think this is a tradition in the US. Uh, after World War I, um, People lost a lot, right? Lost a lot of loved ones and then said, uh, well, we should never do that again. And suddenly the U.S. was against ever going to war again. It was all about never again and, and so forth. And it took a while, but eventually when there was a situation that they felt like, well, okay. And even then, I don't know that that many people were in favor of it until the whole Pearl Harbor thing happened. And then they were like, hey, you know, we're getting attacked at home. Um, this does go in cycles to some uh, to some extent. This whole... We care about the world. We're involved. Oh, no, 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 no. We're not involved. We're not involved. Um, now, the whole rhetoric of the most common thing you'll hear from the average political mind. Oh, wait, that's weird. Not a political mind. Just a mind in the U.S. is why are we the world's police? That's the most common thing people say. It, it, whenever you want to win a debate on Facebook, just go, why are we the world's police? And then a bunch of Americans will go, Hmm, yeah, tired of being the world's police. Because people actually believe that the government runs around being the world's police and that it's costing them money and lives. And, uh, of course, it's much more complicated than that. Yeah, didn't they get um, the memo that the U.S. Uh, economy depends on being the number one? <laughs> they do not read such memos. No, no. didn't they? Oh. No, no. Hmm. Yeah. So, I was just trying to give you a little bit of uh, insight into the psyche, the Facebook psyche of an American. <laughs> <laughs> Now here's a picture of my yeah, son going I, I, to the first day so of school. I'm not so sure what I should be more afraid of. You know, they <laughs> they're going going to war happily <laughs> or 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 no longer. So yeah. what happens in Syria now is totally unclear. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, now they're saying, yeah. First they said it's it's unlikely. Uh, it's unlikely they would agree. It's unlikely that it could actually happen. Nobody knows how much. Uh, 
chemical mm-hmm. weapons they actually are or where they are. You think they, they keep it all in one room? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's actually all here in my cupboard. You know, in Assad. <laughs> One uh, Russian office. guy shows up with a, a checklist, a yeah. piece of paper, and a pencil. A, a small black box. It's all in here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. So, you know, what happens uh, if they say, like, yeah, here you've got 20 spaces where stuff is around? How do you secure them? Is UN personnel moving into Syria and trying to, you know, secure stuff? Are they mm-hmm. going just take yellow and black tape and Put it around, put it police around. line, do not cross, yeah. something like that. I this. don't know, and, and what really annoys me, and I'll say this week after week, uh, because it doesn't become not true, while all this is going on, first of all, in the media, international media, the story becomes all about Obama and Putin and Assad and who, what kind of deal. Meanwhile, information on what the latest military actions are, who's been bombed where, who's been shot, what cities are starving, what... It's like pushed. I mean, I, I'm sure if I go to Syria deeply or something, I can, find, I can still find yeah. people doing reports. But in the in a lot of the press, this has really become the only thing happening in Syria. You'd think everyone was sitting around. I've seen Portuguese news reports. Well, they're, they're, I think they're buying it from British uh, reporters. But where they're in Damascus, where there's no war, or places where there's no war, and, the, and people are just hanging out, drinking coffee, smoking the shisha, and going, we don't want America to bomb us. And it's like, well, yeah, you're you're living. You know, obviously, you don't want to be bombed, but but in you know, they don't go to cities that are completely in piles of rubble and go, "What do you want?" You know, which which they may not say, "We want the U.S." I'm not saying that, but I'm saying the reports right now are so strange because they're so focused on just the U.S. possibly attacking Syria and not on the loss of lives in Syria on any side, be it on the government or the anti-government side. It's completely become. <clears throat> a political sort of media horse race story. Yeah, okay. But there's another um, point, and I think it's getting much more important uh, right now. I mean, I've, I've read reports where they say that the FSA, the Free Syrian Army, mm. who was sort of the label of those fighters who fought the first round here sure. in this, uh, sure. is getting weaker and weaker and less important in that war. I don't know if this is true. That's just what is being... Discussed, and that more of the resistance is sort of taken over by Islamic influenced um, fighters. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. That's just the story, and that's also sort of the the, the punchline for Assad, where he says, like, yeah, if you you know if you bomb us, you are sort of. Uh, empowering those groups which you have no interest in yeah i know i've seen that storyline uh since the beginning i've seen it get stronger and uh sure i mean those types of uh, fighters do exist and and they sometimes get people to rally to their cause but what i've learned from my syrian friends is you know whoever can help them defend their homes is fine uh for now But um, but I, I don't think you know, I think whoever was with the Free Syrian Army uh, three months ago is still with the Free Syrian Army if they're alive. And the Free Syrian Army has always had a mix of religious and less religious people. But yeah. but you know it's been religious. I mean, having a beard, which is associated <laughs> with with religious fundamentalism, was also associated with rebelling against the government. So grow your beard. You know, you look like a bunch of yeah. is, you know an Islamic army. Hippies. Are you? you know, what? <laughs> hippies. <laughs> hippies, yes. You look like a bunch of hippies. A bunch of Jesuses are fighting. <laughs> okay, uh, one, one more take on the, on, this, on the Russian behavior. Because, I mean, 
why is Russia doing this? Why are they taking uh, this? Well, what was their customer. it? Yeah, I mean, in a way, it looks as if they both are actually afraid of the U.S. attacking Syria. It's not that they don't care. It's not that they say like, ah, yeah, whatever. You know, come on, give it to me. That's not the case. There's actually something happening because of Obama wanting to take action. You could, I, th I think that's, that's clear now. You know, yeah. things are moving because of this. Whatever you think about an actual bombing and what the uh, outcome of this would be, Uh, there's actual f fear both on the Syrian side and on the uh, Russian side. And I think it all revolves around airports. Not probably not all, but that's one of the major points. Because when the US attacks, where are they going to, to attack? They're going to attack the, the Air Force. They're going to uh, attack the airports. They're going to uh, deliberately hit the Syrian government where it hurts the most. And that's definitely uh, airstrikes. Hmm. On well, the capability of, of, of their airstrikes, that's what I mean. Because that's what makes the Syrian government so powerful in this war. Yeah, it's, it's bad for business, is basically what I'm getting from what you're saying. <laughs> you know. it's, yeah, it's bad for business uh, now too. So now Russia is moving. Mm -hmm. it's, I'm just saying it's interesting. That they yeah. actually can move. They're actually afraid. Yeah, they're actually trying to come up with something. It's true. So in, in a way, Obama's strategy has had some results, although it's just an intermediate result right now. True. True. And uh, for sure next week there'll be even more developments, as there always seems to be on this story. Um, I wanted to bring something that I noticed in the Australian press while I was looking up elections uh, information, and that is um, there were two photographers, uh, two, one American, one Dutch, uh, who were saved by the Australian Navy, uh, and I happen to know one of them. I worked with him in Afghanistan. Um, Joel van Hout is uh, my friend, uh, who... So they were riding with the boat people. We mentioned this before as an issue. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel like calling them boat people is kind of ridiculous, but okay. Uh, immigrants who are trying to arrive in Australia by boat, often coming from West Papua. Well, I mean, they're not from there. That's the transport point. And uh, it's apparently a very treacherous crossing, and ships sometimes capsize. And Joel is a very interesting photographer. I'll put a link to his work because besides being a war photographer in, in Afghanistan, what he used to show me was... He had done the journey from Morocco, from Senegal, to Spain, or to, rather to the islands, uh, in order to, you know, this whole journey that many migrants make, they pay a lot of money to somebody who does the boat thing, who gives you the fake documents if possible, and gets you into the EU, where you're then, well, it's up to you. And so Joel paid, or was able to convince, basically, people who smuggle people, <laughs> to let him come along and photograph it. And he did that years ago. Mm -hmm. And when I saw this, at first I was like, oh yeah, I know a photographer who does things like that. And there he was getting rescued uh, by, the, by the Australian Navy as he was traveling uh, with boat people again. And I think this work is amazing, um, among other reasons, because there you are in a place where 
Normally, you're not going to have anyone reporting from the boat, right? Everybody's either sick or just focused on getting to where they're going, hoping nothing goes wrong. And he's been able to sit among them, take photos, talk to them about their lives, in some cases talk or communicate somehow, and tell these stories of, of people who are not you know, represented, who are demonized. And when I saw this, I thought, fantastic. And I thought I would recommend um, his work, which some of which you can see on, uh, on his website that will be available in our, our links this week. Um, just one of those types of reporters that is really intrepid, you know, will go to places where no one else will go. So that's a recommendation and a little report. Uh, of, of I, Apparently he's okay. I haven't gotten to speak with him. I probably haven't spoken with him this whole summer, actually. So when things calm down, I'll... Um, I'll hear from him and maybe I'll get a little update about the experience. So he was in real trouble on, on, on that boat. The boat was in trouble. Yeah, and, and it, what's interesting is in his stories from making the journey, the past journeys from Africa to the EU, to Europe, um, a lot of those ships broke as well. But they usually broke when they were very close to the coast. They would hit rocks and people would just swim. And again, I was amazed because he has camera equipment, among other things. He has camera equipment with him, and he was prepared for this. He kept his stuff dry and was able to make his way. It's usually quite close to shore when you hit the rocks. Um, but he had several uh, boats that were destroyed, um, either immediately in the beginning of the trip or at the very end. And he was held uh, in, in a Spanish jail for quite a while because authorities get very upset when a Western journalist comes and, and photographs everything from this this thing that's not supposed to happen and and it's not always very nice the whole story of where uh, migrants get kept and how they get treated and they get stuck on this island forever trying to figure out if they can come to the eu or if they have to be sent back to wherever they come from mm -hmm. so yeah he he again i'm sure when they caught him in australia they probably didn't have a lot of nice things to say to him either because authorities hate this kind of journalist okay which yes Uh, down on the list, we love, besides elections, we love minerals and uh, resource <laughs> that's, news. That's your favorite. It is. Uh, one day I'll be a mineral reporter. I'll be like, <laughs> the rocks are round this year. Um, but so uh, they discovered, BP has discovered uh, significant, quote, significant, unquote, gas uh, in the East Nile Delta in Egypt And apparently it's the biggest ever gas discovery in Egypt. Um, we're only, you know, this is only the beginning. Uh, we'll see what happens, but the BP owns the entire thing, so they have all the rights that they want. And this becomes yet another resource that Egypt has that the world wants and that surely hangs in the whole balance of, of what's going to happen to the country. People are very concerned about the economy in Egypt, so this becomes maybe another thing that they're going to be doing in the future when it comes to economics and work. Um, but uh, at the same time, Niger Delta, gas exploration, I'm a little worried, but that uh, that's always comes with all these mineral exploration. It's apparently the deepest uh, drilling that's ever been done in, in, in this region. So again, will it all go okay? I guess so. We'll see. Yeah. A lot of money, though. East Nile Delta. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 The poor, the poor Nile. It really gets pushed for everything it's got: water, for irrigation, yeah. and now for gas. It's a problem. Mm -hmm. Now, and the last item on today's uh, news list, I thought I would throw this in because 
I always find it interesting when a new news network appears on television. Sometimes it's international. It's always fun. Uh, this one's a national uh, news network. It's called the New South African... Oh, wait, no. It's called ANN7. Um, it's also been called Gupta TV because it's owned by the Gupta family uh, that's very powerful and very pro-South uh, African government. Here's what's interesting about this, if there's anything interesting about this. Um, the policy of the news network... They do sunshine journalism. What's sunshine journalism? It's journalism that promotes the country, unity, and a good feeling about South Africa and what it's doing in the world and at home. And it's become very famous in its first week, and I watched some of the, the reasons, because it's full of problems and constant what we call gaffes where the presenter just says the complete wrong thing or screens don't work. It's a lot of fun to watch some of these clips. Um, really? Sometimes they're just doing a sports report and the sports just never show up on the screen. So the people just stand there going, um, any second now. Uh, it was a great game. You know, nothing happens. Um, Sunshine journalism. Uh, that, that's what they say? Yeah. Yeah. They want to promote sunshine journalism. This this very wealthy and powerful family uh, in media uh, is is very pro uh, government generally, and uh, they funded this thing because uh, I guess famously independent or non government news channels in South Africa are very critical of the ANC of of oh. what the government is doing Ooh. as you'd expect. Ooh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're playing so, unfair. Yeah, but this is a new one for all you journalism students because in the U.S. we've had public journalism in the 90s and then a little bit in 2000. And public journalism was just the, the movement. wasn't political really. Oh, well. And it was about that journalists should get involved to increase understanding. So if you're reporting on a conflict between teachers and a school, then you should, the journalists should encourage them to sit down. You get involved, right? Not the observer journalists. So now we have sunshine journalism, which sounds basically a lot like propaganda, which we already had, but maybe this will be a new brand of, uh, <laughs> of journalism. I don't know. It's weird because it's not a state <clears throat> channel, but it's a privately owned pro-state channel. Talking about new news channels, um, maybe we can just slip this in. Uh, sure. There is a new version of, um, uh, I almost said... Al Jazeera. Uh, yeah, Al Jazeera. Yeah. That is actually produced in the US for yeah. the US uh, public. Yeah. I, I guess they're not dealing with the same technical problems. Uh, not at this point. Uh, I, there's a good report on the Al Jazeera America, as it's being called, which is, by the way, Al Gore's old channel, Current TV. They oh. bought it, oh, and, and I, I thought they were going to keep. I thought they were going to keep the name Current, and they decided no that the name Al Jazeera outside of the U.S. is so respected that they want to stick with it and and change the image slowly because Al Jazeera still has a bad image in the United States because people still think of. I don't know, terrorism, getting the videos played on the channel. This is, I mean, you know that, yeah, that they, Al Jazeera they, was Yeah, they think banned. it's like the Al-Qaeda channel. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this was, mm -hmm. this image has lasted way longer than I think anyone would have expected. I'm still surprised when people think that Al Jazeera is something so horrible it must be hidden. Um, but so it's interesting. They're going with Al Jazeera America. Yep. Uh, all produced in the United States. There's a good report about it, I think, on the media um, uh, two weeks ago did a whole discussion with uh, some of the people in charge of Al Jazeera America and why 
um, they did it this way, why they didn't keep the name current, and also what the difference is between what they're doing and, and what they're doing in Qatar, and, and what the Qatari government can or can't do to them, uh, how much they'll censor them. They talk about Russia today a little bit, and, and sort of, yeah, a lot of these questions that you'd have about a new channel, especially a channel that's Al Jazeera, only in the United I find States. this trend very interesting because it's all about the globalization of news. Uh, right now, we're still used to, you know, the, 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 the primary news channel is still, you know, all about your nation. And you're usually not consuming international content. And it has now some tradition in the US, not that everybody's watching it, but at least something like this exists. Then the concept of both CNN and BBC World has been uh, copied. Mainly BBC right. World has been copied. Al Jazeera was sort of a spin-off of uh, BBC journalists um, that have worked in the uh, Middle East and, and uh, other Arab uh, countries. And um, now they're sort of re-exporting uh, this news concept to to the Western world. And, 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 and I, I find that interesting on many levels also because it's uh, sort of... Um, bringing uh, a different style to uh, to the US that they are not probably not as used to. Uh, I've seen comparisons mm. between like what's CNN doing today what is Al Jazeera showing mm -hmm. today. What you know what are they talking about what's the style and while CNN was much more focusing on boulevard journalism and uh, you know getting yeah, over it hotels. quickly uh, the At least right now, Al Jazeera America is much more into detailed reporting and, and, and discussion and so on. Yeah, and, and what's also odd is you always get this, you know, CNN has an international version and CNN has an America version. Even the BBC now, not, not BBC News necessarily, but there's BBC America. Um, there becomes this... In some ways, it's like catering to the U.S.'s tastes or what they see as the American tastes, which means less international stuff, more national stuff. So in one way, it could be bringing the world closer to the United States or bringing the world into the United States. And on the other hand, it could be international companies still trying to do the same old sort of America-friendly news programs, only now they own it. Instead of Ted Turner in Atlanta, who does CNN, yeah, but so Al Jazeera is not really the kind of project that's made to 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 make money. Oh, I don't know. They get a lot of advertising. I, oh yeah, but I think that Qatar is putting much more money into uh, this operation. It's not all get, about you know uh, making an investment that pays off fifty uh, years from no, now. It's most more news like channels aren't. we we want to have our voice in the world. True. You know, there's a, a higher goal here, and 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 that's totally fine. Uh, France has joined the choir with their <laughs> uh, France twenty uh, four channel. Russia yes. has their yes. version, which is probably the weirdest one of all of them. <laughs> Uh, well, let's not forget Press TV. Very weird, the Iranian one. <laughs> yes, oh, Press TV. Press TV, really? Oh, yeah. I wonder when, when, when Germany is actually joining uh, this game. That's going to be the most awkward stuff. <laughs> the most awkward? Yeah. Yes, the most awkward news channel. Yeah, I can't imagine them doing yeah. it. I mean, there's Deutsche Welle right now. Um, right. But it's more you know, catering to the Germans and other countries, not so much presenting the world, the, the German view, 
Because I hmm. don't think there is always a German view. <laughs> it's like, okay. yeah, we don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But they, they have that presence. You know, I remember in Afghanistan, I'd be in a taxi, and at certain times of day, the taxi drivers would be listening to Deutsche Welle, and it was English lessons. Yes. And, and I thought, oh, I thought that was a BBC thing. Like, no, Deutsche Welle does it too. Yeah. Yeah. Teaching stuff. Germany is always, yeah, let us teach and let us build stuff. Let's build hospitals until as long as we are yeah. not involved in real decisions or <laughs> doing things with actual consequences. <laughs> yeah, here's money, here's your hospital. Uh, yeah, don't. I think that could be very nice. It's, I mean, I know some German hospitals that are very <laughs> oh, yeah, in, they, I mean that in they, some parts they, of the world. They know they can do it, you know, but it's yeah, also yeah. a way of not actually participating in uh, world politics. Mm -hmm. mm. Well, uh, let's go to the news source of the week. It's a very simple one, and considering our heavy Moscow discussion today, I put the Moscow Times in. I don't think I've ever put them before. I hope not. No, you haven't. Um, The Moscow Times, I've known about it for years. I think that when I went to Russia for the first time, which would have been like 2009 or something, uh, on the plane, someone had the Moscow Times. And I, I thought, wow, it's from Moscow, and it's in English. And indeed, they've been around since the 90s, since 92. Um, kind of a small but known publication because it's one of the few in English from Russia. And, you know, independent. I mean, it is owned by now a Finnish, Sonoma is the company, and uh, famous for having some reports. Well, they're not afraid to have reports that are critical of the government. Is it, is it, uh, is it online only? Or is no, it a real uh, paper? It, it is in paper. Okay. And actually, it's a little bit traditional because it used to be only paper. The website was pretty okay. bad. It's gotten a bit better. And they used to make a lot of deals. They still have some open deals with... Uh, the Herald Tribune, which is, of course, this sort of New York Times International, used to be a cooperation thing with, with Washington Post. And they have a few other deals with some big English language media where they provide content or they more often they have content in their newspaper, especially for like international items. Um, and so they'll just have original writing on Russia-related stuff often. And uh, it's a pretty decent paper. When something's happening in Russia, I, I usually look there. Yeah, it's uh, interesting. They have their PDF, uh, the print yeah. edition in PDF for paid members. So that's what you pay for. You pay for the digital version of the printed magazine. Interesting. Why? Yeah. yeah, they're a little slow with change, but they're, they're catching well, up. I saw if the, it works, it works. I don't know. Depends yeah, on the I just customer. got offered the app as I was in the browser <laughs> on my iPad and it said, do you want the app? It's free. And I thought, hmm, how free is it? <laughs> <laughs> Usually it's that first issue is free, and then if you want the next one, you'll have to subscribe. <laughs> That's always the problem. Okay, Mark. Yeah. All right, Tim. Uh, let's see. Coming up, coming up next week, on th if all goes well. I'm still here in Portugal, family still dealing with my uh, grandfather's uh, not well, his sickness. So if all goes well, I'll be back in Amsterdam this time next week. And uh, let's see. Anything, anything big coming up? Uh, well, German elections are in two weeks' time. I'm going to participate in uh, um, a small podcast project where we're doing a live video discussion on on the uh, elections and the outcome, which is going to last for a few hours. Uh, it's called Bundesradio. We've done this uh, before um, at the last uh, German election. Well, the outcome well doesn't really look like change a lot. 
you know. Um, we'll see what uh, will happen, and we can talk about this in two weeks on this program. Okay, I'll keep an eye. I'll keep an eye. And, uh, yeah, all right. So uh, thanks a lot. And uh, always the comments coming in, always very welcome and with lots of facts. I love commenters that uh, provide a lot of examples and background. Thanks for all that. And uh, we'll catch you again next week. Yes. Goodbye. Goodbye.